Well, if you've been following through this series through the Gospel of John, um, you would expect that we'd be in chapter 12 this morning, and we're not. Um, we're going to be in chapter 13. Um, and as you're turning there, I just kind of want to zoom out and look at the, the nature of all that is. All that's in the world and all that's in the Bible. Why does what is exist? And I would propose to you that the reason for everything is that God is making himself known. God is revealing himself. You know, before whatever happened in the beginning where it says in the beginning, before that, God was precisely the same as he is now. Before anything came out of him by the word of his power, he was completely himself. But unknown outside of himself. And so he created all that is by the word of his power. He made mankind in his image so that we would be capable of recognizing him of knowing him. And Satan made a rebellion in heaven. How threatened do you think the Almighty is by Satan's rebellion? Is he up there going, oh my? No. No. God knew from before any angels were created that he would make this archangel and that he would rebel against him. And at any second, God could snap his fingers and the devil would be gone. He could do that. And it would be a great question for you to ask, well then why doesn't he? Because what a lot of trouble. What a lot of trouble is in the world right now. And from the beginning, why the knowledge of the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why, why that? Was it one of these Job chapter 1 things where God and the devil are making a wager about the whole human race? Maybe, maybe not. But did God know when he put the tree there that Adam would absolutely join the rebellion, take the fruit? Yeah, so why put the tree there? Why put the tree there when you know that the result will be a war in Ukraine? And I don't need to describe all the terrible things that happen in war. You're probably aware. Though God could have destroyed the devil immediately, he did not. Why not? God finds the predictable opposition of the enemy useful in his plan to make himself known. Now John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own 
who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that is why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place. He said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it take, takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Look back to verse 1. Verse 1 mentions the Passover. This feast was remembering of God's mighty deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt. Thank you for putting that song in the set. It's perfect. God raised Moses up to deliver his people out of bondage in Egypt. At the time, Moses was herding sheep in Midian. And God meets him in a burning bush and says, go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. And so when we get to Exodus 5, we find Moses having eventually obeyed God, 
And he comes before Pharaoh and says, Yahweh says, let my people go. Chapter 5, verse 2, Pharaoh answers, I don't know this Yahweh, and I'm not letting the people go. And so I think the right way to look at those ten plagues that come afterwards is Yahweh says, oh, you don't know me. Well, let me make a demonstration. You deserve an introduction. And at the end of that process, they knew something about Yahweh. They knew that he was superior to any other god they'd ever had contact with. And the people got to go. God's people got to go. His final act, which accomplishes liberation from Egypt, is the execution of the firstborn of the Egyptians. Maybe you're sitting there going, that's awfully harsh. I I thought this God was love, and he goes and kills some babies? I thought you guys were pro-life. You worship that God? I think maybe that we don't understand well what love is. And that it involves justice. I was thinking last night as I was drifting off to sleep about how Moses narrowly escaped being killed by Pharaoh as a baby. As a baby. All these baby boys being tossed into the Nile. Is God a God of justice? Yeah. Is he a God of love? Yeah. Do the two contradict each other? No. But do we always understand? That's what Jesus asks his disciples at a couple places here in John 13. Do you understand? And they're probably too quick to reply like like me. Yeah, got it. (laughs) Do you understand this God that you worship? Oh, yeah, 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 got it. (laughs) More properly, no, but I love him. And I can't put all the pieces together. As I read this Bible and read it and read it and read it, I I see all these things and I'm like, I have to hold this part with the left hand and this part with the right because I don't know how it fits, but I trust that it does. I don't know how perfect perfect justice and perfect love coexist, but I believe that they do in Him. I don't have to get it. And you don't either. You have to trust that He's good. Because you can't always see it. God would make himself known by setting his people free. And so he executes the firstborn of the Egyptians. One thing we learn of God here is that he's just. God never forgets. Unless... Unless you get washed by the blood of Jesus. And then he separates your sins from you as far as the east is from the west and drowns them in a sea of forgetfulness. Justice will be done. But for us, 
we have a choice regarding justice. Will you stand before God and answer for your sins yourself, or will you put your faith in Jesus, who already bore the penalty of your sins? Because justice was accomplished on him. And that's good news. That's good news. I don't bear my sin before God who never forgets unless, unless the sins are covered by the blood of Jesus. But rebellion will be punished. God's people will be set free. And in these things, God will be made manifest. Father, I pray this morning that as we focus on your word and this peace of the life of Christ, God, that we would see you more clearly than we ever have, trust you more deeply than we ever have, and understand the hour in which we live more clearly so that we can be your representatives here as you intend us to be. God, grant us understanding we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Passover. I, I wanted to start out with that kind of high-level overview because the presence of evil in the Exodus is kind of what they're celebrating. Jesus is celebrating this with his disciples. What did God do when his people were in bondage, crying out? And Pharaoh is giving the best devil impersonation that he can. He's killing, stealing, and destroying, right? And he, he's kind of taking his cue from the father of lies. Oh yeah, I'll, I'll let the people go. Just pray that this plague passes. Moses prays the plague passes. Nah, you know what? changed my mind. Pharaoh is a devil figure. And his people, God's people, are suffering under Pharaoh. Suffering, you might say, under the cruelty of the devil. What does God do? It could have been quick, right? You know what? I'm tired of your devil impersonation. You're done. Could have done that. And he didn't. The process was a lot more painful. Because God chose to kind of tease out the explanation of what it means for him to be sovereign. Now, devil, I know exactly what you're going to do. Predictable. I give you an opportunity, you're going to pounce on it. You hate me. You're going to wage war against all who bear my image. I, I get that. But just because I appear to let you have your way doesn't mean you win. And the cross is exhibit A for the devil doing what he does and losing big time. He lost the war right there at the cross. Here in John 13, we've got Jesus celebrating the Passover. It, looking back, God is in control. I, I love it. Exodus 4, he tells Moses exactly what he's going to do to Pharaoh. And Moses is still in Midian at the time. 
God knows what he's going to do, and he will win. He knows what he will do before he does it. He knows his adversary so well. He knows how he will react in any scenario. Why does God allow the devil or Pharaoh or Judas even to exist? They're useful in his process of making himself known. Do you know that the cross of Christ involved the worst sins that have ever been committed, ever? How do you get there without a devil? You don't. Judas was under the influence of Satan, big time. How do you have somebody that walks with Jesus for three years then turn and stab him in the back? You've got to have the devil for that. Jesus knew it. He knew who would betray him. So I want to just take this a little out of order. I want to point out first that throughout this passage, the word know or knew knowing or understand, understanding. It's all the same word in Greek. So there's kind of a, there's a theme. I I underlined every time these words occur throughout the passage. It's kind of, uh, see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Uh, Seven times they reoccur in 20 verses. It's it's a fair bit. So I'm going to just kind of extract First of all, what Jesus knows, and then we'll look at what Jesus does. We'll look at what the enemy knows and does, and then what Jesus teaches, and then we'll, we'll be done here. So, verse 1, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, So what does Jesus know? He knows the timetable. That's something we don't, right? Have you noticed that pretty much every year something's happened in the news and we're like, ah, Jesus is coming soon. We're not wrong. (laughs) He is, but I've been watching this happen since like the 80s. And people keep thinking, oh, I see it. He's right at the gates. And he is, by the way. He is. His coming is always nearer to us now than when we first believed. That's always true. But when it comes to the details of timetable, you can read Revelation every day for the rest of your life, and you won't know exactly how it goes. Because he wants to be pleased with us, And God is only pleased with faith. And if you know everything, you won't trust for everything. So you know what you need to know. And it's a little bit. I know what I need to know. It's a little bit. Because he wants me to relate to him by faith. So that he can be pleased with me. I want that too. Jesus knows the timetable And he knows his destination. He's going to God. I I think we can claim the same thing for ourselves. 
Not the timetable, but you know your destination. It's heaven where Jesus is the center and the glory, his presence illuminates that place. That's where you're going. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he'd come from God and was going back to God. So I I notice, first of all, in verse 3, Jesus knows his authority. All things are his. Notice, with that authority, he doesn't expose Judas or eliminate the devil. He could. With that kind of authority, he could have. Furthermore, we see his origin. He came from God. And it says in the First uh, John chapter 3, I believe, John says, little children, you are from God. Did you know you have the same origin as Jesus? Because you've been born of Jesus' father? Yeah. Verse 7. Jesus answered Peter, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Jesus understood the significance of his ministry. And I would propose to you that you have a need to understand the significance of what he has you doing here. Because we're supposed to be participating intelligently with his plan and not just blindly like pawns on a chessboard. No, no, he moves me. I'll, I'll just wait until he does something. I don't understand the game, but... <laughs> no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends because the servant does not know the will of his master. We're supposed to know. And I think probably most of you, like me, have a lot of days where you go, I don't know what it is I'm supposed to know right now because I feel like I'm kind of in the dark. Hang in there. Because if he intends for you to know something, guess what? You're going to get it. You're going to get that understanding in time. Asking you shall receive. Again in verse 7, Jesus says, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Jesus knows the future. Verse 11, what else does Jesus know? It says, for Jesus knew who was to betray him. He knows who the traitors are. I had Grace check up on somebody who used to sing on my worship team years ago. Uh, How's she doing? Well, divorced and uh, living with a guy she's not married to. Just breaks my heart, you know? Because this is some kind of treachery against Jesus. You know him? For, for years you've been in his presence and, and sung his praises and, and now this? 
Let's see. I don't want to be too hard. You know, Peter was also something of a traitor. And Jesus told him all about it beforehand. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith not fail. And when you've returned, strengthen your brothers. Not every treachery is fatal. And I don't want to preach a hopelessness or a hardness without any kind of silver lining in it because he knows us and he knows our frame, knows that we're dust. And he doesn't despise the frailty. He's the kind that prays for us that our faith not fails so that after our little treacheries, we return and strengthen the brothers. That's his plan for you and for me. He knows the traitors and verse 18, Jesus says, I know whom I've chosen. He knows his own. He knows you. He knows you whom he's chosen to preserve in faith, to preserve in steadfastness, to preserve in good works to the end. He knows you. And I hope that's sweet to your soul because I think every one of us has this wish. I wish that I could be known. Wish that I could be recognized. Wished that in recognition there was some kind of admiration or cherishing of who I am. I think that's every human being. Jesus says, I see you. I recognize you. And I see that you're being made in the image of God. That's worth perfecting. And that's worth preserving forever. That's the plan. To perfect and to preserve forever. So that's what Jesus knows. What does he do? He's got all this understanding going on. What does he do? Verse 1, knowing that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. (laughs) Jesus responds to his perfect knowledge and understanding with this outflow of love. And it's not new. I mean, he loved them from the beginning of that relationship, and he he just... He's got follow-through. He starts loving and he loves all the way to the finish line. And that's your call too. And my call too is to love well. well what does that look like? Verse 4, He rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, took a towel and tied it around his waist. Preparation for service of the lowest kind. I've read that there was kind of a seniority among servants in a household, and whoever the low guy on the totem pole was, that would be the the foot washer. A lot of slaves would be much too dignified to do the foot washing. 
just the guy with lowest seniority, lowest status, he's, he's going to be the one that does that job. And there was apparently nobody in that upper room to wash feet. And so everybody's there with grimy feet. He loves to the end, so he girds himself for service. And then verse 5, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He does the worst work. Is that natural? Let's just say you're a crew boss and you've got three guys that answer to you. Is it natural when there's some wading through some sewage that needs to be done to say, I got that part, guys. While I'm doing that, take care of this. A a lot of people would go, you know what? I've got guys working for me, and I I sent some paperwork that needs to be done in the truck really desperately right this minute. They're going to wade through the sewage. Not the example Jesus set. He does the worst work. Verses 6 through 10. Peter questions Jesus. Seriously? Are are you seriously washing my feet? I, I don't think that's okay. I'm not comfortable. You who have majesty, you're a king. You're not supposed to take the place of the lowest slave. I'm not okay with being served like that by you. And I think that there's probably a a piece of that response in every one of us. No, no, no. I I, I would do that if you asked me to. I would, but, but you shouldn't be doing that, Jesus. It's not your place. I remember I was in, um, I was in southern India and nobody wears their shoes inside the house. All these marble or, or granite floors. Uh, it's pretty nice, nice and cool. But we were getting ready to go someplace, and I sat down on the floor to put my shoes on. And my host is like, oh, please, please, don't sit on the floor. That, that was somehow bad to them, like it was beneath my dignity to sit down and put my shoes on. Uh, you're, you're touching the floor. Looks fine. Peter's much more concerned than my host was that Jesus was doing something that was beneath him. Not just that he was doing it, but that he was doing it for him. But no, I realize my feet are, okay, it's bad, I stepped in some things. But, But you shouldn't be saddled with fixing it. You're the king. I mean, you're supposed to sit on the throne and be robed in majesty, not with a towel. What? Please don't. I, I, could, I could take over. So Jesus doesn't give perfect understanding, but he promises it here. Afterward, you will understand. And then, I love this in verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he resumed his place among them. 
He got dressed just like them and took a place among them. Jesus takes a place with us. Remember this season, his name is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And even though he possesses infinitely more majesty than we do, he takes his place among us. That's what he does with his knowledge. So let's reflect briefly on what the enemy knows and does. It's small in comparison. And it's what the enemy does is governed by God. Verse 2, during supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So the enemy knows who is vulnerable to his influence. And it would be a good practice for us to pray for each other, not to be vulnerable. Because I know for myself, the devil's always pulling on me. Always saying, hey, there's an opportunity. And you should probably do what you need to do. And, and you know, it's wicked when the enemy turns you against yourself. Because you know what you really want? You want God to be glorified in your body. You want God to be glorified in your spirit. You want God to be glorified in your emotions and in all your choices. When you're in your right mind, that's what you want. And sometimes you're just not. Sometimes I'm just not completely in my right mind. And because you know this, I think it would be really, really, really good to think about the people who are right here and to pray and say, oh Lord, would you cover over their vulnerability with your grace so that when the devil's tugging, that they have the presence of mind to say, Jesus, I love you more. And to walk in a manner that pleases him because you do. Let's commit to pray for each other. Um, yeah, the devil had already put it into Judas's heart. What does the enemy do? He implants plans in the heart. So glad that he's not the only player playing, so to speak. Jesus is in the game, and he's going to win this. Verse 11 Jesus knew who was going to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. The devil sees opportunities and seizes them. Just like the cross. Wait, he's going to bear his neck? I'm totally going to kill him. That, that's, that's how the devil rolls and God knew it. In fact, I think without the devil knowing it, God recruited him for that task so that we would be redeemed. And then, verse 18, Jesus says, The scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. The devil plans violence against him who has only ever acted with kindness. It's the heart of ingratitude. 
And I think it's important for us to remember every time that we're tempted not to be grateful for things that have been done for us, that that's the devil. It's the heart of the devil to be ungrateful for kindness. All right, that's enough about the devil. What does Jesus teach? The, the, the whole end of this passage is him uh, taking what he did for them out of love at the meal and saying, this is what you should take away from this. And there are a number of things. Um, verse 12, he asked the question, do you understand what I've done for you? So the, the first thing that he's urging us toward is to reach for understanding. Look at what Jesus did and reach for understanding. He says, you call me teacher and Lord. And you are right, for so I am. So uh, understand what Jesus teaches regarding service. And Understand who Jesus is in his authority. That's what the word Lord means. It means one who wields perfect authority. You call somebody Lord, it means absolutely whatever you say, I'm going to do that. Verse 14, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So, verse 14 I choose the worst work. And I want you to look ahead. He's eating the Passover with his disciples and he's getting ready for the cross. The cross where he's going to make all of us clean. The cross where, you know, washing dung off of people's feet is a small thing compared to what he bore for us on the cross. All the sin of all the people of all the generations of the world laid on him who knew no sin. He's getting ready to take the worst work. You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I've done to you. What does he teach? I call you to follow. That was the original call, right? Follow me. Follow me. He says, I'm still calling you to follow. Now you know more about me. You know that I teach about the kingdom of God. You know that I cast out demons. You know that I perform miracles. You know that I take the worst work for myself. Follow me. Sixteen and seventeen. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed are you who follow. Follow him. Receive the blessing. Follow him. Receive the blessing. Be blessed in lowly service. Verse 18, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. If you follow Jesus, expect opposition. Expect opposition from the enemy. Expect that the enemy's going to turn up the heat. I was talking to Timmy 
earlier, talking about Romans 8.16, where it says, We shall be glorified with Him, will reign with Him, will rule with Him, if we suffer with Him. You know what God wants for you? He wants you to be like Jesus. And you can't be like Jesus without suffering. So the devil's really helpful. I, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to paint Satan like a virtuous character. That's, that's not the truth. He is your enemy. It's just that he doesn't have enough vision and he doesn't have enough power in order to actually do you harm. Let me tease that out just a little bit. Revelation 12, 11 says, They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives even to the death. Can the devil take your life from you? Yeah, actually. But not your eternal life. Not everything that hurts harms. You can be hurt. You can't be harmed by him. You can only be commended for being more like Jesus, for suffering for his name's sake. Is it pleasant? Not hardly. But is it good in the end? Yeah. He's a redeemer. He takes things that appear to have fallen apart in our hands and He transforms them into glory for Himself. What if it really hurts? It must be great glory that's coming. Fix your eyes on Him who's gone before, who took the lowliest place of service, who even humbled Himself to the point of death on a cross, but is now highly exalted. Keep your eyes on Him. This morning we don't live in ancient Egypt or Israel, yet many aspects of today's texts are amazingly relevant to our situation today. We're supposed to keep reminding one another of the mighty acts of deliverance God has done in past days and to be reminded of who he is in the process. Most of all, we are to remember Jesus' love and his humble service for his followers a service which led all the way to the cross where something much worse than dung-defiled feet was laid on him. Worship team, would you come? By bearing our sins in his body on the cross, he has forever cleansed those who put their trust in him. Friends, we still have an enemy because God still finds him useful in demonstrating who he is. God is a deliverer, a savior, a redeemer. By not overpowering the devil, but allowing him to strike down the Son of God, God has triumphed over him. In this hour of distresses, will you not trust in him? Trusting Jesus will cause you to follow him into acts of service that you likely will feel are beneath you. 
even though the devil appears to have his way at times, remember that our God reigns. Our God reigns even over Satan. If you had pledged afresh to follow Jesus' example, no matter what the adversary might do, I want to invite you to stand up where you are. Stand up where you are as a pledge. I'm going to follow Jesus. I want to dismiss this morning by singing together once again.